0: The history of it definitely started with native plains artists documenting their life and we continue to do that today. And that's what my work is about, is really documenting and recording and communicating ideas.
1: print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo, Giles, and Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the field of print media and multiples. This episode of Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products. Speedball is thrilled to announce that they are extending their range of the beloved oil-based block printing ink. Partnering with Hello Print friend host Ronaldo Gil Zambrano to give the line a fresh new look, they have launched 10 rich color options in convenient 8-ounce cans. The ink is formulated to be permanent, waterproof, and archival, but provides easy cleanup with vegetable oil. Available now for purchase through Speedball's website. This episode is also brought to you by Legion Paper. Legion is a fine art paper company representing the best papers in the world. They either stock it, source it, or make it. With brands like Stonehenge, Somerset, Coventry, Reeves, Arches, and more, Legion is the best paper resource for every artist's and printmaker's needs. Learn more about the variety of paper Legion stocks at www.legionpaper.com. My guest this week is Teren Laskan. Teren is a Bikani citizen and visual artist whose work centers around the process of color exploration and visual documentation of nature, cosmos, cultural narratives, and recollections of home. We talk about indigenous abstraction, the tradition of Bikani-painted lodges, studying at the prestigious Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, and why his current canvases are often papers torn from vintage ledger books. Without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to get abstract with Taryn Laska. Hi, Taryn. How's it going? Good. Thanks for having me. Good, good. Thank you for joining me. I feel like there's a certain kind of funny irony in that we've been living and working and moving in the same geographical area, and we finally get to sit down long distance while I'm in Washington state.
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> but I think that is just the nature of being busy art people. And so you yeah. just have to steal time where we can. So I'm very happy to connect with you and, and, and looking forward to talking with you and learning more about your work and, and printmaking and all of that. So thanks for letting me borrow an hour of your Wednesday morning.
0: Yes, totally. I'm excited to, just be on the podcast and share some of my studio practice with everyone.
1: Awesome. Well, before we get into my questions, would you let people know those classic Hello Print Friend questions, who you are, where you are, what you do?
0: Yeah, totally. Well, I'll start by introducing myself in Bikani. Okay, ni week, anokok am na to tu to Bikani. Hello, everyone. My name is Taryn Lasgun. I am a Bikani citizen, also known as the Blackfeet Nation of Montana. My Bikani name or Blackfoot name is Na Machka, which means Lasgun. It was my great-great-grandfather Dick Kipp's Blackfoot name that was transferred to me. And he's he had other names as well that he went by. But this was one of them and that got transferred to me. And there's various other family members who used the name as well, Last Gun. And so that little bit of family history on that. I'm originally from Browning, Montana. That's where I was born and raised, pretty rural community in Northwestern Montana. We sit right up against the Rocky Mountain Front there, which we refer to as Mr. or the backbone of the world. And we border Canada, my reservation borders Canada. And so we're kind of right up in this corner. We also border Glacier National Park, which was our, Mm. which is our traditional territory. And, and yeah, so just, that's a brief, like the landscape and like where I'm geographically from, where my nation is located. And today though, currently I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I've been here since 2011. I came down to attend the Institute of American Indian arts where I received my BFA in museum studies and AFA in studio arts in 2016. And I focused on, for my AFA in studio arts, I focused on printmaking and photography while attending III. And what do I do? I, I'm a visual artist. That's what I consider myself, Bikani visual artist. And I work in various mediums currently. You know, like I said, I start. I focused in printmaking and photography, so those were my early on. My early works are a lot of those mediums, but today, currently, I'm doing ledger drawings on antique ledger sheets and documents and records, and also paintings and murals are sort of the five besides photography and um, serigraphs in terms of printmaking. A technique I was really drawn to is screen printing or serographs, and creating fine art, limited editions.
1: Beautiful. So kind of sticking around in that landscape of your childhood a little bit longer, what was the role of art in that time in your life?
0: Yes. Well, my father, Terrence Garda he's an artist. He's been an artist his whole life, my whole life. And so I definitely grew up around his work. He's a painter and also does ledger drawings. And so that's where I got some of my first ledger sheets from. And also for us Picani people, we're part of the Blackfoot Confederacy or the Tzitopi. And that includes four nations. And so it's my tribe, Pekani, Um There's a Pikani in Canada, Alberta, and Ghana, or the Bloods, and Siksika or Blackfoot as their known as, but collectively we're known as the Blackfoot Confederacy and my nation, we're the only ones in Montana, Mm. but so we, just to give a little context about that, because we all share a common language, we all speak Blackfoot language, we all share the same origin story, creation story, just all these cultural stories, narratives that are tied to the landscape, we all share that and are connected to it collectively. And one thing that I've always been drawn to is our painted lodges. And so they, we lived in lodges or teepees as a lot of people know them as, but I, I refer to them as lodges. And usually there'd be a, a camp of 300 lodges and 10 would be painted. And so they're very rare, very unique and very powerful spiritual living places that are sort of that were painted. And so they can be broken up into three tiers. The bottom is the land, the middle is the helper, the authority, the animal, the weather element, different whatever that helper might be to that individual. And then the top is the sky world or the, the cosmos. And so I've always been drawn to the top and bottom because the top is disks, these circles are polka dots and that's what represents stars and sun and moon. And then the bottom has triangles which is the mountains. It has mounds, which is hills. And then sometimes it's just flat for the plains. And so there's all these different sort of like a visual vocabulary that I've been able to learn about as I've gotten older and pull from, as from an artistic point of view. And so those I've seen growing up a lot, attending the, especially Indian days, North American Indian days during the summer, That's our big powwow celebration and everyone's camped. And some people, lodge owners will, painted lodge owners will set up their their lodges. And it was just so, always so fascinating to see them. And and they're a, a cone shape. The lodge itself, when you're inside, there's all the poles and they all cross each other at the top. And so there's all these visual elements of it that are so, like, Inspirational that you can pull, and so the mm. that's one thing that I've always been drawn to growing up, and it's a lot of people wouldn't look at it as art, but today, contemporary times, I think these are like classic, great plains art that has been around Absolutely.
1: for
0: hundreds, even thousands of years on this North American landscape, and so, and just the idea that we've been painting that long, here mm-hmm. in North America, that medium. No one really talks about it like that. But after that, I was just like, oh, wow, you know, we've it's, we always think of the Western art canon as like what art is. But, you know, in North yeah. America, there's this whole different outlook on it. What art means, you know, those those paintings, those lodges, they almost seem alive to me. You know, they, they become mm. alive and this living piece that is taking care of like a like a bundle or like a holy item. They're very, they're just, there's so much that can be said about those. And those are a big inspiration to me, along with my father's work too. So,
1: The lodges that you were seeing as a child, were they historical? Are there people continuing to make them? Contemporary artists who are making new ones? Was it a combination of both?
0: Yeah, no. So it's the history of them, they they are usually passed down um through family lineage or they're completely new through dreams and so mm. the a lot of those lodge designs come from dreams the dream world and this animal or some helper coming to them in their dream and instructing them how to create this and so so the history of colonialism settlers moving into montana a lot of things began to get traded or sold and landed in museums and college Mm -hmm. university museums, collections, but, and then some have remained in families. So like today they're pretty rare, but they're still in existence. They're still there. And that's the, the beauty of it that that they have lasted on and that some people are starting to revive or repatriate or restore, you know, all these, Re's R E Mm -hmm. words are such a great way to that how I envision my own art, a lot of it is like reestablishing our presence, our experience. But yeah, repatriating. Some things are coming back. Some things went dorm but just went dormant is a good way to look at it. And it's just waiting for a family member to bring that back. Mm -hmm. But they're really hard. I've tried to look at my own family history and figure out like do we have a painted lodge in ours and most people do probably everyone did but it's just not well documented and it's yeah just the documentation part of it is is scattered but mm-hmm. it is there it's part of the it's more of a the actual culture of us whereas christianity is a big has a big pre- like presence on my reservation as well and so there's there's those things that like that may might hinder someone from taking on a lodge just because they're t- into the contemporary times they're doing they're following this other sort of
1: yeah. spiritual
0: route but yeah they they're some are really old and some are new and so when they get really old and damaged and this is knowledge that is out there as well sometimes i don't i feel like I don't want to share too much but it is some of this is public knowledge because yeah it's very you're not supposed to duplicate anyone's lodge mm. that would bring harm or that would just it's a taboo I guess in a sense so you'd never copy someone and duplicate it and that's stands today I think it does happen though where people are like trying to figure out who has that lodge maybe within a family and like I said this goes across the entire confederacy so it's just not us in Montana this is in Alberta Canada as well and making sure you're just well-rounded with the entire confederacy Mm is good. But yeah, that's how they, if they're ever worn out, they can get repaired. They can get Mm. given back to the earth, to the nature, by either getting sunk in a lake or just left out on open plains. But probably not so much that today, the open plains thing, because
1: of
0: theft and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I always found that fascinating too, how it could be worn out and then be restarted in a sense, revived, just like transferred from one canvas to the one hide to the next hide. It's really interesting interesting. about those lodges.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Beautiful. And so then when you were growing up, were you a kid who was drawing a lot? Were you, would you paint alongside your father? What was the path between sort of childhood and then coming to IAIA?
0: Yeah. I, I never thought of myself as an artist growing up, I didn't even want to pursue art because
1: hmm. I
0: guess that's just like, everyone was always like, Oh, you're going to be an artist like your dad, you know, right. <laughs> <stuff>. <laughs> know. No, I'm not, I'm going to do something else. And it's funny that I came to II to pursue museum studies, but then sort of fell into studio arts and pursuing that. But growing up, I used to dance at powwows. I was a grass dancer, traditional dancer, and then eventually a prairie chicken dancer, which that style of dance we say as Blackfoot people originated amongst us. And so I always grew up going to powwows with my grandparents and my parents and just other powwow friends. And that was definitely a performance type of art and where you're activating your full body to embody this sort of, I don't know, this style of dance. And then also the music, the drumming, the singing, the various types of songs. So I always felt creative in that sense and then the Powell world is very colorful mm. a lot of different color combinations and so I definitely that has moved into like my color play and use color use today and then I just sort of did a little bit of drawing here and there with my dad but not a lot I was really into collecting for some reason like collecting coins mm. and mm-hmm toys, Hot Wheels. I had a really cool Hot Wheel collection. I
1: feel like that's a good basis for a museum studies interest, you know?
0: (laughs) And just, yeah, rocks. I still collect rocks today. I love rocks. My partner, yeah, we're always picking up rocks somewhere, Samantha, and so it's (laughs) we have this, like, big old collection. Wherever we move to, we're, like, trying to take them all with us. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, no, I, I went to, I also wanted to mention I attended the pagan institute and at the time the program i was under was called the lost children's school
1: mm. and it's a language
0: immersion school so they they taught just the language blackfoot language throughout the oh,
1: wonderful
0: year and so i was there from fourth to seventh grade or fourth to sixth grade and just that little time really instilled in me my language mm-hmm. my culture these different stories that are from an artistic point of view, you know, they're just so inspirational. Like the headdresses, those are sculptural, three-dimensional, and they're just so amazing. And like, those are high honor pieces. So not everyone has these different types of headdresses, but I've always thought about that and our war shirts. And it was because of that school experience of going to the Pagan Institute. And now they run this the Cutswood School. It's called now. And it's K through eighth grade, I believe, or first through eighth grade. Uh, so yeah, that's that's a big important place on my reservation. That a lot of it's small, but definitely packs a punch <laughs> and yeah. really inspired me. And my uncle, the late Daryl Ropes Kip, he co-founded it. It's another mm-hmm. member, and then my uncle, his son Darren Kip Laska, he manages it today. And so. It's still there, and that's a big part of who I am today. So I just wanted to mention that.
1: I mean, what a wonderful thing to exist in the world, you know? Because yeah. I, 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 mean, I know that it's no coincidence that when settlers and colonizers come someplace, one of the first things they try to do is disrupt language. Is mm-hmm. one of the, is 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 forbid that form of communicating that's so intrinsic to a culture. And so, what a powerful thing to have. A school that's running today that's keeping that alive yeah it is.
0: The, like you said they, the colonization and settle settlers moving in sort of invading at that time because there were things in place saying like this was our land but they just kept encroaching and turning it into yeah. farmland and but then the board and school era too that was really meant to break the language and culture. And then the bison that was meant to break our diet, our spirituality, all these things like just hammering us throughout our history that I feel I'm at the other end of it now. And we're able to, I don't like, like I said, going back to those restore, reaffirm, just reinvigorate the landscape from our perspective and point of view that has been sort of pushed to the side or even erased
1: yeah 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 definitely. That's been very actively and deliberately been sought to be destroyed you know mm-hmm. and and I think it's wonderful the resiliency and dedication to mm-hmm. keeping culture alive is is really profound for sure, yeah,
0: yeah no, and even the love, the love of yeah. community to to push through because of instances like that too so
1: mm-hmm, yeah. Oh, that's so great that you got to have that experience and go to that school, and you've got the the family connections there. Yeah, yeah, I
0: know. No, I've I've always cherished that, and I try to go back and visit the students there now and and show them my art. I've done a few talks there since the last few years now. So
1: very cool, very cool. Well, where does printmaking come into this story of yours? Was that yeah. in New Mexico or any time before then?
0: No, basically New Mexico. My dad attended II for a few years. He didn't graduate, but he attended the school, and he's the guy who got me to go to II. He heard of the museum studies program, and that was something I sort of was interested in pursuing after I attended the Blackfeet Community College in Browning, and I received my associate's AA in or AS in environmental science, and so that's. I kinda of just yeah, I was jumping around like not figure trying to figure out what I want to do and I always been drawn to culture, history and and items. I, I took a trip mm. to Canada and we got to see all these Blackfoot war shirts that were supposedly traded back in like uh. the eighteen fifties and were brought over to the Oxford University in England and they brought all five back over to the Blackfoot people in Canada. So my school at the Blackfeet Community College bust all of us up there, like whoever wanted to go. And we got to go into the collections and we got to like wear gloves and touch the items. And then those war shirts were made out of hides and they have symbols and like a lot of discs in the chest part representing the sun and other representations. And then they also had this couple there one of the last remaining people with the rights to make those shirts and so everything is about having the rights not everything but a lot of things involve having rights and also transfers you have Mm -hmm. like in order to have a painted lodge it has to go through a transfer to to get to you and that's just how things work and so they had this older couple that made a a modern version of one of the shirts just all white hide and I got to try that on and so it felt really crazy to have one of those original hide shirts from like the 1800s and even before that that's how it just was and so that was really a cool experience and that really got me like thinking wow museums are actually pretty cool we Mm. can connect with our cultural items and of course there's a darker history to museums of stealing and just taking and inaccessibility to that the actual living cultures you know a lot of things that was being taught to university students about our culture didn't never made it to us until more contemporary times and that's my uncle daryl robes kip he was a huge researcher like super smart guy went to harvard and i just learned so much from him like growing up listening to him and really admire everything i've i've learned from him but Yeah, that's so that's what got me into museum studies. I was like, this is a cool trip. I really want to pursue something like this and give back to my community. So that's what brought me to I.I. And that's why my dad was like, go here, do this. And Mm -hmm. I did. And I started to walk around in the academic studio building, which is most of the studio arts classes are. And I would see all these what I thought were posters at first on the wall. And they were all like, I was like, what are these paintings on paper? You know, yeah, I, didn't, yeah. I didn't understand like, because I didn't never seen it. I'd never seen printmaking. I didn't know what printmaking was, but I just thought I was so drawn to it. I was like, this is such a cool aesthetic, like visual aesthetic that I'm drawn to. And I started to ask more about it and I, I found started to learn about printmaking. And before I could take printmaking courses, I had to take like color theory, 2D, fundamentals, I think drawing one. And so I added, I, and one of my museum teachers was like instructors. He told us that we should take a studio arts class so we can see the other side of the, the museum world. Like we're on the Mm -hmm. inside of it, but like get the artist perspective. And I was like, that's such a cool idea, but I was so nervous. I was like, that sounds so just hard. And I I was like, but I want to challenge myself. So I took color theory and that was just a lot of fun and just (laughs) learning out of paint. I don't know, textures, lines, all this different type of stuff, but using color. And so that was actually my introduction to color use, learning about complementary colors, learning about the color wheel, which is like my biggest tool today. And and then eventually I said, I'm going to add on a minor. And so I was like, I'm going to do a minor. And so I started taking all the recommended classes. Eventually I was like, I'm gonna do an associate and I'm gonna focus on printmaking and photography. And so I took introduction to printmaking with Alex Pena. I learned a lot from that. I learned all the more woodcut monoprints, linoleum, reductive lino cuts, and learned a lot. He was very he's a pretty precise (laughs) instructor who's no longer there. And then I took intermediate with Karsten Creightney, who now works at UNM. I believe mm-hmm. he's there. I learned a lot from him. You know, we mainly focused on wood blocks and scale, so going much larger and just sort of really honing in on the the press and the techniques of using that. And so, yeah, that. and then I eventually took Serigraph 1 and 2 with Jameson Chase Banks, who is also one of my mentors today. And I just, that was the one I fell in love with. (laughs) That was the Mm. technique that I was like, it's so fast. It's so quick. I'm just a little impatient when it (laughs) (laughs) came to the other ones, but I was like, this one is so quick. I can produce like multiples even quicker. And yeah, I I just really was like drawn to that quickness of it. And the, yeah, just, it, it seemed like it required all these other equipment too that I was like, okay, this is a, kind of the odd child of the techniques
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and and some that like didn't give it the full like I've I was always trying to push fine art limited editions and I feel like it was hard to get in that realm with with screen printing I guess and serigraphs mm-hmm. at first but then eventually I started to I, I really enjoyed mono printing where I could print the whole paper one color and yeah. And that was so much fun. And so I was like, I want to try this in screen printing. And so I started to grab these huge screens and tape off my entire like 30 by 22 inch Somerset or Stonehenge. Stonehenge is my favorite screen printing paper, but BFK Reeves, all these other ones I was using at the time too. Um, and I'd print the whole paper one color and it was a messy process, but it in the end, like it's just so amazing to see like this full paper, one color that you can see the deckled edge. Yeah, I was just like, this is such a cool look. And I've continued to pursue that whenever I do print. I, I really enjoy doing these full bleeds. Mm-hmm. It just makes the paper feel so different. And then all of a sudden, to me at least, I felt like it had this higher quality of like, yeah, I'm trying to push fine art with this. And this is something that's different. And I that's where I felt like I was starting to get somewhere that, felt like I could pursue this a little more in the beginning I was doing more I don't know I think these are just typical too like political stuff also comical stuff like I was always drawn to like robots so I created these what I was (laughs) calling Indian robots and people want me to do that on (laughs) like people still like that and I was doing that kind of stuff and then I think I was in like advanced printmaking or something and I did another one and my one instructor was like yeah, this is cool. But what else can you do? And that really right, stuck with right, me. Right. Like, oh my God. Yeah. Like, it kind of like rubbed me wrong. But then I was like, no, he's right. What else can I do? And
1: <laughs> Sometimes how can I- those moments are so important like when we when we hear something that does pop our ego a bit and it makes an impression though it's like ow this this growth hurts but I guess I need it
0: (laughs) definitely because after that I really pushed myself to like explore just different things and and I think that's where the lodge design started to come into play a little Mm. more or the, like I said, the bottom being land and the top being the sky world. I started to play with those more after that. Even though I was using those elements, even in the Indian robots, like their body parts were these star Cosmo designs Mm. and like different things like the mountain design. Yeah, and so that's, after I heard that, I was like, oh yeah, you're right. I should continue to develop. And so since then I've, I've, kept, I always keep that in the back of my mind, like keep pushing yourself, don't get too comfortable and work with, so my shapes have evolved. They were these logs, but now they're starting to be deconstructed and reconstructed or just fragments of those symbols. And that's sort of where I'm at today. But that's, that's how I learned about printmaking was at I.I. I took all these classes after that I was like, I just took independent courses. Even after I graduated, I, I continued to take at least one class a semester because that gave me 16 weeks to just work and play in the studio. Yeah, yeah.
1: Versus and a, access to the equipment, which is huge, of course. Yeah, versus working at
0: yeah. a, a print shop in town where they want sixty bucks a screen. Or like there's these all these different things. And I was just like, once I learned that after I graduated, I was like, oh my gosh, I was like, this is not doable for me right now I was like Mm -hmm. even the semester cost at first I was like oh my gosh this is way too much but after a while I was like okay this is totally affordable like I could make this back at a market or you know a show yeah so that's what I did after I graduated I continued to take courses and still learn but after a while after the pandemic it was the pandemic shut a lot of everything down even including Mm -hmm. the print shop at II and Print shops around town, and that's when I was like, "Okay, what do I do now?" And that's when ledger drawing came into play, and I started. Yeah, that.
1: yeah absolutely. I, I definitely want to to talk about the ledger drawing for sure because they're so beautiful and intriguing. But I wanted to ask you about using. These sort of unusual substrates in your printmaking, like paper bags and that yeah. kind of thing, and and that part of the the print practice, which maybe evolved into more unusual substrates, like historical leisures. But yeah, yeah, when did you kind right. of break from your 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 favorites, the the Reeves BFK and all that, and start using the other formats?
0: Yeah, yeah that's a great question because those are some fun. The paper bag series kind of an ongoing series in a sense has been really fun and and different to work with and even see framed i think it's so cool to see yeah it it was the the ii school the what is it the store there that they that's where they sell all like the papers printmaking paper and supplies Mm -hmm. and the manager there at the time just wasn't using all these paper bags and he knew I was in printmaking and so he's the guy who suggested, do you want these to try printing on? And I was like, oh that's such a cool idea. Yeah, you know, like, sure, I'll take all these. And then and they're the exact same ones I still continue to use today. They're just this U-line, like 16 by 24 inches with a handle. And so I I just ordered some after that. Actually I ordered like a big box of them and continued to like just print different things. But That's what started it, and I just started printing on them, and the brown paper really Mm -hmm. makes the colors pop. And I had seen other paper bags done over art history, like Roy Lichtenstein, Andy Warhol. There was some Native artists as well that had done these paper bags, and and some of them were closed, collapsed. Like mine are most of the time just collapsed, but some were open. What is his name? His name is like G jemison G jemison or something like that but he, he's Seneca artist and he does a lot of big art and his work into like the Met and different collections such as those ones but yeah I was like this is part of art history and I want to take my have my take on it and and play around with this I think the paper the color of it was really what intrigued me because that's when I started to use a little more craft stonehenge the brown looking stonehenge paper i started mm-hmm. to experiment with that color and based on those paper bags but it was just i think i was thinking of in terms of my own cultural background and even ledger drawing it's all about being resourceful and using what you on, oh,
1: uh-huh.
0: and in the moment i guess you could say and that was especially what it was for me as a student, you know, not much money to get a lot of things, yeah. took what I could get. And, and it it was just, yeah, it turned out to be so cool to see those. And I had a show at Echo Emano on Canyon Road in 2019, no, 2020. And it was all the, I did 10 paper bags mm-hmm. series. And they were all framed for that show and, that was the first time really showing them in a, an exhibit, I guess, that that I was able to do a solo show too. And that was a lot of fun, I especially to see them framed. I've been working with a framer here in town and she's just done such a, an incredible job with all my work. And it's so, it's yeah, it's just, I, I don't like framing myself. Cause yeah, and yeah. I it could like, it takes so much money too sometimes. But I don't know, it just looks so much better when a professional does it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's it's interesting how frames can elevate objects. So it goes from a paper bag, just like a standard Uline bulk order paper bag, to a work of fine art in a solo show in a gallery because you put wood and glass around it. It's really interesting the kind of magic that frames have. Yeah.
0: It was really difficult too with that one the paper bag. I mean like I like I've said I've I've tried to I know the history of printmaking is very like accessible and like mm-hmm. once you do have it it is a community based medium and I really like that about it. But I've also really liked learning about other printmakers who are trying to push it into the fine art realm and especially mm-hmm. screen printers or people creating serigraphs. That's I really admire them and never really considered my work like that until i talked with jason garcia who's a santa clara printmaker and i just asked him one day like do you consider your prints to be fine art and he was like well yeah (laughs)
1: like
0: like, because i was still trying to figure out like is this, can can we like compete in those realms? Well, particularly,
1: I mean, I think it's a question for all printmakers, but screen printers do have it, I think, a little, a little steeper of a hill to climb maybe. And I think yeah. because people associate it with T-shirts and gig yeah. posters yeah. and, you know, kind of ephemeral or functional things. And for some reason, in the kind of traditional hierarchy of the art world, functional and fine can't be synonyms they're sort of like the opposite ends of what we think about in visual culture yeah
0: yeah everyone was always trying to get me to do t-shirts too and I was just like no (laughs) (laughs) it's just but I did them I did them for like clubs movie things student things and then I did a few on my own but it's just never been something I really want heavily wanted to pursue in within terms of printmaking it was always just like Using high quality paper. That was one thing my instructors kind of always pushed was like right. These are the good ones to use. And and then for screen printing, I use water based inks. That's what I like to work with and I like to mix my own colors as well. And yeah, I think that's after asking Jason about that, I, I was like, okay, my work is fine art too.
1: <laughs> Damn right, yeah.
0: <laughs> By doing the full bleeds, like taking this extra step. And time, and you know, it's very process oriented. Like I think that sort of adds to that, because I was like, okay, well, yeah, obviously, printmakers—they have are woodblock or even lithography—they're so time-consuming, and and so I was like, well, how? I think that's the only way I could compete against them is like putting more time into my work. But some people think it looks so simple that there's not much time going into it, but really there is like, it's it's pretty wild.
1: I, I feel like if, if you have any sense of, of color, particularly, you wouldn't think that looking at your work because it's, it's so, the colors you use are so sort of pitch perfect, right? They're doing they're they're, they're functioning and doing heavy lifting in their individual quality. And then also in the way that they're interacting Mm -hmm. And I think that, I don't know. I think that if you know anything about color and art making and you encounter some of these stereographs that, that you make, you couldn't think that because you're like, this is not someone who's just popping colors out of a can and being like, oh yeah, purple and blue. There you go. It's art. Like, no, 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 no. There's a lot more going on here.
0: Yeah, there is. And that stems from a number of things. The lodges, a lot of colors used on the lodges are the primary colors, yellow, blue, red, but also black, sometimes green. And then I've always been drawn to op art, pop art for those Mm -hmm. color play, color schemes, messing with your eyes, optical illusion, like play. Minimalism has always been top one and then of course geometric abstraction because of the lodges you know we had our way of doing that as well and and there's there's this what I like to think about I guess is like indigenous abstraction or even indigenous geometric Uh abstraction how that is there there's a few readings I came across or writings about Australia and their indigenous artists and how they are talking about indigenous abstraction where it does look abstract, but yet they're like maps or they're yeah. a landscape or there's there's a star story. And I was like, that's exactly what we're doing over here too. You know. So I, I really mm. admired those writings I came across that talked about this idea of indigenous abstraction. And even in Canada, First Nation artists still and curators they'll talk about that a little more too. And and so I think of my work and also Blackfoot art or Pikani art, sort of like that in the sense that yes, it is looks abstract, but there's so much meaning and layers to to a lot of that that work that I that I can see in my own work, like especially printmaking, there's so many layers to the work, you know, even when it the process itself from the full bleed to everything being layered on top. It's just one color on top of the other color, is how I've worked in terms of screen printing and I think that's a little different too from other screen printers. My registration, I would use my clear mylar, that what mm. I would print on top of and then move it and then put the paper down and register, move it and then print. You know, I it was a different way of printing that I learned that I I that I see that other people do a little different. So I've always wanted to learn like the other ways of doing <laughs> registration and stuff like that. But my way and the way I work in terms of these big shapes and they're not really like, it's okay if they fall a little to the right or to the left sometimes. Right. <laughs> and so this method I use with the clear Mylar really helps and assists in, in that that process right there.
1: At what point did this all sort of evolve into the ledger drawings? I know you said that the <laughs> logistical constraints of the pandemic Mm -hmm. had an influence on it, which is really understandable. But when did you start drawing on them and what kind of ledgers are they and where do you get them and all that stuff?
0: Yeah, no, ledger drawing is so much fun. My dad does it, like I said, and he gave me some of my first antique ledger sheets. They're anywhere from like a, a county record to a city record to a tax record to just a notebook and to cattle records, you know, these journals that were used personally to record their cattle. And so those are different sheets I have. And like you said, the like going back to what I said, actually with the pandemic, it really cut my access off to a lot of these print shops. Yeah. And I had shows coming up. I had a solo show at the... AI Museum of Contemporary Native Arts store they have a it's called the Lloyd Kiva New Gallery and it's kind of a smaller mm-hmm. space in the store there and they typically give a students or mainly graduates shows there and that was my second show that they had given me and I just finished the Echo Mono paper bake series but I didn't get to finish the, the other work oh. so and it started to close down and so I was like oh no I have to figure this out and I was like, well, maybe it's time I use this ledger paper that I've been sitting with for a few years. I never wanted to draw on it because it's so like it feels so it just feels like a historical record in a sense. Yeah, kind <laughs> of precious. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: I wanted to feel like I was really fully ready, my mindset, ready to take this on. And yeah, the pandemic was like, okay, my show is in August. I was in the spring semester. That happened. And so I just was like, okay, let's let's figure this out. How can I do these ledger drawings? And so I took a lot of the ways of working in printmaking over to this ledger. And I was like, okay, there's one piece now. There's an original, unique drawing versus (laughs) multiples. Because over the years, I've always kept my number ones. And so I have a nice big collection of prints that are all my number ones, Mm. you know I'm getting ready for a solo show right now and a lot of those number ones are going to be in that and we could talk about that later too but the the just the ledger though I was like how can I do this and so I I really like working with versions and so I'll pick a shape and that's what I was doing in printmaking too and then I'll work with it differently I'll have a basic outline of a shape and then I'll fill it in differently and then fill it in with colors differently and so I work in the series anywhere from four to 14, sometimes of like image that kind of looks like each like each other. And I really like how that looks in terms of an exhibit presentation where they're all the same size frames. Yeah. I think that was And that's what I try to go for within my own work. You know, I'm using white frames. I'm like, I'm really like trying, I'm always like telling people, please be careful touching those frames. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. This is a museum studies influence right there. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Because I've gotten stuff back where it's like a fingerprint and I'm like, ah, god damn. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's how I work. I, I pick a sheet of paper and then I'll pick like 10 of those sheets of that same size or however many number I want to work with. Lately I've been working in threes based on Instagram because I like to post in threes. So I've been creating work Uh in like three, six, nine or 12 or 15. So, and that's, like I said, based on that Instagram, I like to post in threes. And so I lately I've been working in that sort of number and numbers are fun. I really love numbers. Like I have probably, a number of numbers that are my favorite (laughs) but the the ledger in terms of ledger drawing history the it started in like the 1850s late 1800s and from what my father has told me and from what i've read because it is documented too they were they were incarcerated plains artists Mm. incarcerated plains warriors who for most and this is For most Plains tribes, personally, and for our region, we documented our success, our achievements, our coup stories on hides, even on our lodges. There's some lodges that are considered war lodges, and they'll have like a story, like a, it looks like pictographs or petroglyphs, but these sort of like glyph-like figures telling a story. And when these people were incarcerated, they were just given like random ledger paper, At the time, it wasn't really antique, but it was ledger paper at their time. And they would just record these different histories anywhere from ceremony to courtship Mm -hmm. to everyday life activities to eventually war, U.S. military, like a lot of all of a sudden, I guess, Americans included in that mainly through army, the army and war and stuff like that. And then eventually, but it kind of moved into, well, it died out there for a while. And then it moved into what it is today, where, like my father, he really focuses on cultural figures, warrior figures, these historical figures that are part of our culture and our history. And and I really enjoyed that history of documenting, because I felt like I was doing that in printmaking. I was documenting these stories, these experiences, these recollections of home, um, and I just carried that on into these other mediums that I worked with and, and ledger drawing, I felt like just was so fitting for that reason. And so it's a, it's definitely a, a, a native sort of art movement. I guess you could look at it mm-hmm. like that. It started, yeah. but today I see Western, non-native Western artists trying to do that now too. But the history of it definitely started with native Plains artists documenting their life and We continue to do that today. And that's what my work is about, uh, is really documenting and recording and communicating ideas that I'm interested in expressing artistically.
1: I'd love it if you could speak to the titles of some of the ledger drawings too, because some of them are just untitled and some of them are these really poetic Turns a phrase like an impressive journey ahead, or when yeah. the time is right. and And so nearing completion, I mean, they they have these really powerful sort of narrative slices is what they feel like. And so, how do you when you're working with geometric abstraction, how do you know what something's supposed to be called? And, and do you see the title as a way that's supposed to inform the viewer? Or is it more kind of like a companion to the yeah. piece rather than like a didactic to the piece?
0: It's definitely another layer. and mm-hmm. really gives the viewer insight into what I'm thinking about that particular work. A lot of my titles will come after it's created. And so it's really the color that that helps the title the way it feels all of these titles are based on feelings and emotions and even other people's experiences like my father's experience he's really moved up in our culture our way of life our societies so i really admire my dad for that and some of those what he's doing right now influences my titles (laughs) and my cat influences my titles, you know, like I just, I'm <laughs> feeling, but like, I really enjoy because I feel my work is the types of color schemes I'm using, whether they're subtle or very vibrant and charged with energy. I really like to use those, those feelings in the title because that's what I'm I'm trying to go for. I'm trying to create mm. visual energy. I often think about insects and birds and how they're attracted or not attracted to certain colors, and and how like they're so drawn in. And so I think as humans we can have that sort of similar experience where we see something in particular art and are just like so drawn into it. You know, it just captivates us. And so I, I I'm trying to do that through color and shape and Mm. these are done that's when I sit with my notebook I have a little notebook that I I sit with and then I just write down keywords that come to mind so I'm just like like for instance this one was on cattle records and I uh, some of the keywords that I have written down right now are ripple intense calming intensity connection power visual direction color play cattle land landscape new mexico 1931 2023 uh-huh. surge you know like all these different things that are coming to mind and then i i start to pull those keywords to create the final title and so and then mm. each piece i'm working with i'll write so if i'm working on 6 the first one i'll write number 1 on the back side and then i'll move on to the second one and write those numbers and so when i'm titling of I work in that order. And then when I'm photographing, I work in that order. And so, and then when I send it to the gallery, it's all in order from when it was created every time. I'm glad you asked about that because it is a big part of my process. It just takes time to, and in the beginning, the titles were really based on, like I said, the land and the cosmos. Now mm-hmm. they're entering, like I said, where I'm starting to deconstruct them and pull fragments from them. Now it's starting to take on a, a an even more abstract, I guess, feel. And that's why the titles are starting to become based on experiences. Like, what does this color make me feel like? These two colors together. And then that's where the title comes from.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're definitely a whole another side to experiencing the work, I think. And, and can often be the case with abstract or abstracted work is people will almost instinctually I think go to the title to yeah. try and get some sort of purchase some sort of foothold yeah. to come to understand the piece and and yours you can tell that there's a lot of thought put into it
0: I love some of the early artists such as Albert Kelly but Frank Stella I really mm-hmm. love his early work Frederick yeah. Hammersley here in New Mexico I love his color play and his shapes he was creating and then Carmen Herrera, she had some really cool colors, schemes and these bold shapes. And so those are for sure some people I'm really drawn to their work as well.
1: In the time we have left, I want to make sure that you give a chance to talk about your solo museum show that's coming up in Montana later this year, which is because that's very exciting. Is that Does that feel like kind of a a homecoming at all? I know it's it's very it's in it's in Missoula, which is not too far from where you grew up.
0: Yeah. No, it does, like you said, feel like a homecoming. I've been so the since the pandemic in twenty twenty, I was working at a gallery here in town in shipping and I was one of the first to (laughs) get laid off. And after that I was Mm -hmm. like, they wanted me to come back, but I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do this. I want to try this on my own. I want to try to pursue this full time. And, yeah. and I have been since then. And so it's been quite the journey to to do that full time since then, since the pandemic. But thankfully I've built up these relationships with various galleries that I've I've been working with and who have given me shows in New Mexico. So most of my art career has been here in Santa Fe. I've chose to remain here because of the art scene here and just that it is an art community and that there's various opportunities as well. And so I always wondered if anyone in Montana was watching my career in terms of <laughs> like museum mainly, but, and even my own community, but most of my work has been shown in my own community. And obviously my family, they all know about it and people I've interacted with at the ECC and Pagan Institute. But yeah, no, they the ma'am, they reached out to me, the curator there, and they had been watching my work for a bit. I think they first seen it at Echoe Mano too. Most people have seen my work at Echoe Mano, and now I'm at Echo Gallery, mm-hmm. his second location. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's I'm so excited for the show. It's 30 works. It's a freaking large show, and mm-hmm. <laughs> and like I said, I I save my number ones, and so there's gonna be four of my large serigraphs that I did these square doorway type works almost. They're so cool. They're full bleeds, 22 by 22 inches. I just picked them up from the framer last week.
1: Oh, cool.
0: And those are, so I have to ship those out. And then I'm picking up six more ledger drawings that I just finished at the framer this week too. And those are going to be shipped out. But yeah, these are, and then I'm having nine of the paper bags in the show. They're being framed in Missoula right now it's it's a mix it's the past four years of work mm-hmm. a lot of serigraphs like the the nine paper bags these four ones the four i have two other large serigraphs come going there and then i have ledger drawings and so gallery hojo who i work with in albuquerque i'm having eight of my works sent out from there and then echo gallery they're sending out a large serigraph i did and a large diptych ledger I did that actually won first place last year at the Santa Fe Indian market. And it also got best oh, of nice. vision a, <laughs> yeah. and so yeah, I'm really happy. And actually the show is titled after that diptych ledger drawing, which is called future cosmic energy. And so my show in Missoula is called mm. future cosmic energy. And it's just this idea of like a lot of my work all, dr- draws from the, past like i like to think 10,000 plus years and so i'm always i'm always trying to think of like well what does that next 10,000 plus years look like for not yeah. only any but just humanity human life in general and <clears throat> and so that title was sort of based on that idea of looking at a timeline that is really expansive thousands of years and so i created this diptych yeah. window i like to think of it as a window that just allows you to sort of get lost in your thought. And I think most of my work, I'm hoping that people can just stare and, you know, see what comes to mind, I guess, because I think it's really interesting to hear what comes to mind for people. Even my partner, Samantha, like it's interesting to hear what she, what it makes her think of. And (laughs) so, yeah, the Missoula show is going to be good.
1: Yeah. And I think that that's a grand tradition and abstraction is contemplation yeah when you look at the work because it's something that's figurative it's i don't know if you could even make something that's figurative that's not narrative you know like you Uh look at it and you're like okay that's a dog that's a plant and there there's some dynamic between them like you start to bring a very left brain experience i think really early on yeah but with abstracted work it's it does invite more i think of a subjective response because you're not sort of being told you don't get the sense that there is an objective truth to it and so yeah. that of course invites contemplation yeah. so yeah i think that's yeah. that's oh that's that's super exciting what are yeah. the dates for that exhibition
0: the dates are april 18th through august 12th and Great. so that'll be up for a good, a good amount, a few months there. And the artist reception is May 5th. And so we're flying up for that. And then I'm doing an artist talk
1: the following morning. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, we're actually like out of time. I yeah. can't believe it. I had so many more questions, but this has just been such a fun and wonderful conversation. So,
0: yeah. um, we'll do a redo just, volume two.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I would love to have you back on. We can maybe do a, a reflection after the museum exhibition. Let us know how it went and, right. and you know what's yeah. in the future and all of that. That'd be beautiful. And in the meantime, where can people find you and follow you and and yeah. uh, see your work? Yeah.
0: Well, they definitely can find me on social media, Facebook and Instagram. Both of them are at Taryn Laskin and then my website is just tarenlascun.com those are easy access on your phone that if you wanted to look look me up quickly but also I like like I mentioned I do work with Gallery Hojo in Albuquerque New Mexico and Echo Gallery here in Santa Fe and then I also work with K Art Gallery in Buffalo New York and I you know the I guess the one that I've just slowly been working with that I've been doing group shows with, and they carry some of my new work. Is the McLean Gallery, and they're based in Houston. And so, okay. those are sort of the four people I work with at the moment. And that's a whole, like, that's a whole nother conversation is gallery artists and how many you take on. And- no,
1: absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And that balance between, like, Wanting to get your work out there, but then, like, every gallery is demanding work. And then, yeah. if you're very exacting with your work, like you are, how do you balance that? That's we can all do that in volume two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh,
0: that's a whole nother can of worms for sure. <laughs> and I'm just like, what am I for doing? Sure. But <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, thank you again. It's just been really, really delightful. And I'm so excited for what you have on the horizon. And I look forward to to helping share it. Cool.
0: Thank you, Miranda.
1: If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon, where you can help us keep the lines on and get bonus content, like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friends sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week. My guest will be Joshua Orsburn, an artist and collaborative printer working in Santa Fe. We talk about formative experiences in his childhood, working at the iconic Landfall Editions shortly after attending Tamarind, how we use art to process trauma, and how we make trauma-informed art with thoughtful and responsible methods. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.